Life Without Unnecessary Suffering. In this episode, Eckhart sits down with an audience in Paris. He encourages participants to explore the experience of his talk beyond the words because it holds the seeds to awakening. He also talks about the obstacles presented by the ego, which he illustrates with the ancient Greek myth of Narcissus, a beautiful young man who drowned in a pool of water gazing at his own reflection. Eckhart explains there's a deep truth to this story which is still relevant today. He says we risk a similar fate if we identify too closely with the ego and its insatiable demands. He ponders the possibility of resisting the pull to turn life's difficulties into suffering. He explains that challenges will continue, but we don't have to turn every problem into unhappiness. Eckhart asks the audience to consider, is it possible to go through life without creating unnecessary suffering for ourselves and others? It has taken a long time, but finally I'm speaking here in France and in Paris, and I'm very happy to be here with all of you. Our evening operates on two levels. One is the conventional level. Words are spoken, concepts mental concepts and to some extent you can understand those concepts you listen you understand but the essence of our evening does not happen on a conceptual level conceptual understanding of what I'm talking about will not be enough to make this evening enjoyable for you Conceptual understanding will not be enough. It is more a question of inviting you by using concepts as signposts, inviting you to actually experience for yourself or realize for yourself what it is that I'm talking about. And what it is that I'm talking about is a certain dimension of consciousness in you that is awakening or is just at the point of being ready to awaken. And most humans on the planet don't even know that such a dimension exists, although all the ancient spiritual teachers have pointed to it and spoken about it. And in most humans, it is only a potential, a dormant potential, but not in you, because you have come here. Something has drawn you here. So we could say that the subject matter of this evening is really you. I'm going to talk ultimately about you and I will be pointing to something in you that is easily overlooked but is of extraordinary importance if you want to live a fulfilled and meaningful life instead of a life 
that is full of frustration and ultimately suffering, a life that is experienced in the words of Churchill, who was actually talking about history, one damn thing after another. One damn thing after another. So the story, if we go back to, to the beginning, the story of you, let's travel back in time to a prehistoric mythological time where we encounter a young man going for a walk in the woods and his name, according to ancient Greek mythology, is Narcissus. He looked into the pond and he saw his own reflection in the pond. And he was amazed at the beauty of his own reflection. Now you might think, is that perhaps a very ancient prophecy of the selfie? <laughs> Can't take my eyes off it. <laughs> no, it was not a prophecy of the selfie, but it, there's a connection, of course. There is a connection. This is the glass surface of the selfie, and here we have the reflection of his own image in the water. That story in mythology often expresses a deep truth which otherwise humans would not understand or could not express in, in an, any abstract way. The truth needs to be embedded in a story. And this is, there's a very deep truth here that points to the arising of a mentally created self-image that people have and live with. So it's almost as if you had a phantom that walks with you wherever you go, that is your mind-created image or concept of who you are. And that is what we call the ego. The ego is a mental image conditioned by the past, conditioned by your environment and many other factors. A mental image, a conceptual sense of self that you identify with so completely that you disappear in it and live through it. You believe that that is who you are. And that is the conditioned mind-made self. It consists of layers, different layers. At the most fundamental level, first of all, everybody identifies, first of all, with your physical body. That's the most fundamental level of identification. You believe that you are the body. You identify with the body that you are. And the body, of course, already is a problematic thing to identify with because 
you compare this body that you say I am this body this physical form and then you compare to others and it can be a source of pride if your body is better looking or stronger than most other bodies the ego gets in there and feels inflated greater it can also be a source of suffering or shame if your body is not the way you think it should be or society tells you should be or when you compare it to others it's not as strong or as beautiful you suffer you have a sense of self that feels less than on the other side you might have a sense of self that feels more than but I can see how people who are good-looking or strong or both how easy it is for them to seek a large part of their identity in their external appearance. And that can be fine for a while, but inevitably, of course, what is a source of pleasure for some years gradually and perhaps even quickly turns into a source of suffering because the body does not last. And a day comes when you look in the mirror and the mirror image is no longer the same as it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Especially if you have a photo of yourself next to the mirror, something went very wrong here. And then it becomes a source of suffering. Now, in our civilization, there are repair jobs that you can do that for a while will help you feel you're still okay, good-looking, but inevitably you suffer, begin to suffer more and more because who you think you are is diminishing. Your sense of self-worth is diminishing, and that's a source of great suffering. And, of course, humans who identified with a negative body image, they are suffering already when they are young. <laughs> they don't have to wait until the body grows old. So we have identification with the body, and then you put clothes on the body, of course, that they become an extension of the body, and they can add something, they can hide things, they can conceal things that don't look so good, or they can enhance things that look good. And then you, it's nice, so you, people are looking at me. It feels good to the ego. This is, I call it, form identity. Form, physical form. And that's only the beginning of your form identity. Now we go on to what you identify with on the level of the mind because here we have a huge set of thoughts, images and narratives that continuously go through your head that are the result of environment, the culture you grow up in, the, even the language that you grow up with is more than just a communication tool. The language that you grow up with conditions you already 
to behave in a certain way. And so you are recognizable to many people then as, oh, there's a French person. You can, there others can recognize, oh, there's an Italian, there's an Englishman. They can sometimes easily be recognized because of that conditioning. So you get a gradually thoughts arise as the child grows up, begins to grow up, the child learns language, the child asks questions, what is this, what is that? Gradually, concept form in the mind of the child. And with certain concepts, the child identifies. Identify mean it gives you your sense of who you are. It gives you your sense of self. My toy is one of the first things. This is my toy. This is the beginning of the ego. You cannot stop it. You cannot tell a child, don't say my toy, it's your ego. The child has to go through that stage. The ego ideally is a stage that people grow out of as they grow up. However, that mostly is not the case, unfortunately. Most humans never grow out of it. <laughs> so my toy, remove a toy from a child that the, the child has called my, creates enormous suffering. The child will cry and or scream as if you had torn a, a limb. You, you had torn something off the child's body. Mine, mistaken, mine. And of course, if, if that has not happened, five minutes later the child would have lost interest in it completely. So it, it is not the toy that causes the suffering, it is the mental concept of toy that the child identifies with that causes the suffering. And that is the beginning. Then, of course, the child also is told a name. The child identifies with a name. This is one of the first things a child is taught. You are John, or whatever French, typical French name might be. Pierre, je suis Pierre. Oh, qui es-tu? Je suis Pierre. Oh. Now I know who I am. It's a concept, and the concept is endowed with a sense of self. And the concept is the thought. But it's not an ordinary thought. It's a thought that has a sense of self in it. And this is why we use the term identify. You derive your identity from that particular thought. And once you have this thought, which is a thought form, another aspect of your form identity, then other things begin to accumulate around the name of who you are. Possessions, toys is possessions, then other things accumulate things that you can do, things that others cannot do, things that you know that others don't know, things that your parents have and other parents don't have. And then gradually more and more things begin to accumulate around the central core of the conceptual self. And as you then grow up, 
before you know it, you live through this mind-made sense of self and you begin to develop a narrative and you call this narrative me and my life. That's my life, that's me. And that's your history, your personal history and things in your personal history that you strongly identify with. Things that happened to you and especially things that other people did to you, your parents for example. And there's no childhood that is free of suffering. There are always people who do things to you. So you have this sense of self that is based on your personal history and all the things that are the conditioning of who you are. Your culture, your collective conditioning, not only your country, it might be your religion, it might be many other things that you identify with as me. That's me, that's, that is I. And then as you grow up, you continue to live through a conceptual reality of yourself that is revived by thinking about it and talking about it. And for most people, it's a very problematic sense of self. There's no ego that is not problematic. And the ego, that mind-made sense of self, always has a sense of lack something is still missing, something is not right. I don't know what it is, but many people have the feeling they need to arrive somewhere, but they have not arrived yet. Other people have the feeling that their life has not quite started yet. They are still getting ready to live. They're looking forward to a point in the future where my life actually takes off. When is it going to? It's certainly not this, where I live now, the work I'm doing now, who I'm with. That, that can't be my life. I'm waiting, as the English expression goes, I don't know how they translate that. I'm waiting for my break, my big break. I'm waiting for it to make it. And of course, there are people who reach the age of 65 and 70 and say, it never started. My life never started. I've always been waiting for something, both on a small scale, waiting for the weekend or the next vacation, or on a larger scale, waiting for the fulfilling, the ultimately fulfilling relationship, the ultimately fulfilling financial situation, the ultimately fulfilling living situation. I've been waiting for it and occasionally I thought I had arrived. But it always turned out to be an illusion. I have spoken to some famous people who tell me that after they became famous, for a while they felt elated. Their ego grew and grew. And then something happened and they were even more unhappy than before because there was still that sense of that's not it and they, they realized that the image that other people had of them was a complete illusion. What the newspapers wrote about them was complete illusion and so there was the sudden realization that this is not who I am but who am I 
And then they either take drugs in order to dull the pain, to desensitize them to the, themselves to the pain, or they open up to the deeper dimension of who they are. So let's look for a moment at your life, which is a thing probably of great interest to you. Your life, there's not a single person in this room whose life is not problematic and challenging. There's no doubt that life is difficult. There's nobody for whom life is not difficult. And if your life were not difficult, in other words, if you were not challenged by life, that would turn into the greatest difficulty. If you were not challenged by life, then that lack of challenge would become your greatest challenge. <laughs> but there are very few people, it never lasts for long. You might have a trust fund from your parents or grandparents. You may have enough money and you never need to work, look for a job, have a nice house already when you're 20, and a great car when you're 20, and you have, can go wherever you want, and there you are. And you would find that this, this life would become deeply unfulfilling after a few years. And then that will turn into your challenge. So it's, there's no getting away from the fact that life will always challenge you. Okay, we need to let go of the belief, the unspoken belief, that this should not be happening that there should be no problems in my life. There are many people who feel that they are, have personally, personally been singled out by the universe or by God or some malevolent entity to make their lives difficult. I was one of those. I was deeply identified with negative thoughts. And whenever something bad happened to me, it already started when I was 16, whenever something bad happened to me, I had a thought. And that thought would say, of course, bad things always happen to me, always to me. Look at these people, how happy they are. Everything bad always happens to me. And it did. So the challenges are actually the most important thing in your evolution. Life seems to put obstacles in your path. I want to get there, but now something is blocking me. There is an obstacle on my path. And life does that all the time. Just the moment you think, now I'm there, I made it, I got this great job now. Then something else goes wrong in your relationship or your physical body or somebody close to you suddenly has a huge problem, or the living situation, or there's a huge marital thing, your wife falls in love with somebody else. Or there's always something to interfere with the smooth functioning. <laughs> you cannot have all the things that make up your life functioning smoothly simultaneously. Living situation, work situation, financial situation, health situation, uh, whatever else maybe all your children are happy and doing very well. And you can travel and your, your body is totally and perfectly healthy and everything is just fantastic. Well, it, 
it could happen for a little while, not long, if you say, yes, I'm one of those people that you're talking about, uh, this has happened in my life, just wait a little and see what happens then. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to demand internally that life should leave you alone, don't put obstacles in my path, this is not how the universe functions. Every life form experiences challenges. From the smallest life form, even a plant or a little animal, the moment they are born, they are confronted with challenges. And it's only by being confronted with challenges that evolution happens. If you were not confronted, or any life form were not confronted with challenges, life on this planet or any other planet would not evolve. And your life would not evolve. And everybody here is here because you have experienced challenges. You have suffered. You have been unhappy. And to some extent, you might still be, but you're seeing the po possibility of transforming the challenges of life into suffering. The challenges will not stop. But the question is, are you internally, because of your mental conditioning, transforming every challenge, the little one, the big one, transforming every problem and every challenge that life throws at you, transforming it into unhappiness? into misery, into suffering, what the Buddha called dukkha, which is translated as suffering, unhappiness, misery, unsatisfactoriness, whatever you want to call it. Now here we come to the possibility not of being free of challenges, if you demand that of the universe or of God, you will be very disappointed and condemned to continuous frustration. No, not demanding that life should not be challenging anymore, but realizing the possibility of no longer transforming the challenges of life into unhappiness or suffering. This is something worth exploring. Is it possible to go through life without creating suffering for yourself? Now, that's already a strange way of speaking about it, because it always seems that the unhappiness in your life is created by circumstances around you. Everybody believes that, of course, this particular situation is making me unhappy. And in many, many cases, the circumstances that make you unhappy are to do with people, because people are so difficult. You might have noticed so for many people, other people, whether it's relationship or at work, 
this is a huge source of suffering for many people because other people are making your life difficult. Which of course is why Jean Paul Sartre said, hell is les autres, which is translated into English as other people. Hell is these people there. But of course, it can come in many forms. Now, a very interesting experiment, you start on a small scale with little suffering, which in, in normally would not even be recognized as suffering. As you might realize in modern life, there are many frustrating things. And I could take any of the many frustrating things that you encounter in modern life, for example, even just wanting to talk to your bank on the phone. But there's no, you cannot reach, I don't know if it's the same here, you cannot reach a human being. You can only reach pre-recorded messages and then you go select this, select this. And finally you think, okay, to talk to somebody, press zero after 10 minutes. And then there's a waiting period now of 25 minutes. But already you've built up an enormous amount of frustration and irritation. Irritation is a small form of suffering. It could happen at the, also another place where you can encounter this minor suffering is at airports or in traffic. These are when you get irritated. This is not usually recognized as suffering, but it is a small form of suffering. And somebody who gets irritated several times a day over a period of years builds up an enormous amount of unresolved suffering within him or her. They build up and then the irritation becomes part of your ego and you go through life just waiting for the next thing to be irritated about because it strengthens your fictitious sense of self or the ego. And the moment you react, the ego gets inflated. Perhaps we've all met people like that. There's nobody here like that, of course, because otherwise you wouldn't have come here. Or if there is, if you, if you recognize it in yourself right now, that's a wonderful thing. That's self-recognition. You might be totally irritated with me. Well, that's a great thing to, to realize that you are irritated with the speaker. Why? Because he hasn't said anything significant yet. So now you experiment with a small form of suffering. Let's, let's you know, be on the telephone or at the airport or in the traffic jam and you get, how does the suffering arise? You need to have some awareness to ask yourself, how does this arise? Well, the mind says, well, because of this thing that's happening here, and these people are totally incompetent. Or the, the traffic, which I, I live in this, why am I living here in this just, it's so all oh, the fumes and the traffic, it's so dreadful. And then you look more closely, is, is this situation causing you the suffering? Or is it something that you add 
to the situation? What, what, what is it that you add to the situation? What you add to the situation is certain thoughts. And those thoughts are not pleasant. These thoughts are saying, this should not be happening. Or they are saying, I don't want to be here. Or they are saying, I want to be somewhere else. Or they say, this is such a dreadful situation, I can't stand it anymore. I just can't stand it. I can't stand this. And suddenly you wake up, something else arises, awareness. Awareness of your own thought processes. That is awakening. That is spiritual awakening, the beginning of it. When you become aware of the voice in the head instead of being identified with the voice in the head. There is an awareness. And you are in this situation and suddenly you see, okay, how would I experience this situation if I did not add those thoughts to it? If I just let it be without the addition of certain thoughts that are saying that this should not be happening, I don't want to be here, whatever they say. That's a good experiment. And then in this experiment, you, you, you drop the thoughts for a moment. So there you are. Let's say you're at the airline counter waiting to check in, and you've been standing there for 25 minutes. It might even say the flight is delayed by three hours, or nobody's telling you anything. And there you are getting very irritated and saying, okay, I'm not adding any thought to this moment, and I'm just experiencing this moment as it is. And suddenly you're experiencing this moment as it is. What is it that you're experiencing? You're experiencing yourself as standing there, breathing, perceiving visual perception. You look around, humans, lights, people moving here and there, and you can feel your body. Perhaps there's a little pain in the body because you've been standing there for a while, but that's not suffering, it's a little pain in the body. So there you are, and suddenly you feel, well, this situation is not actually as bad as my mind said it was. That's weird. And, and then you realize, actually, it's not bad at all. It just is the way it is. You no longer add mental baggage to the situation, and you take this moment as it is. If you can take action, of course you take action. If you say, okay, I'm standing in this lineup at the airline counter, I've been standing here for 25 minutes, maybe there's a better lineup, I can move there. If you can do something, you do it. But if, if there's no possibility of changing the situation, this is what is. So to argue internally, to argue with what is, is something that strengthens the egoic sense of self. Because this mind-made sense of self needs to have enemies. It needs to fight against this and that and that because then it feels this boundary of me more strongly. 
It needs opposition, it needs antagonism. So that's unconscious. The ego gets stronger when you complain mentally. Then the egos, you, you feel you are morally superior to the situation. <laughs> when you cl complain about a person, you're obviously more superior to that person. You know what he did? And you know what he said to me? And then I said to him, and then how can he do such a thing? Of course, not all the stories that you tell, and the interesting thing about the stories that the ego tells is that you are always right and the others are always wrong. Isn't that strange? I'm always right, other people are always wrong. I hadn't realized that. I must be superior to everybody. But of course, that's the ego. We remove a huge amount of suffering from life and unhappiness when we do not add unnecessary baggage to situations that arise. And when I say situations, what I mean is, of course, the present moment. It's always, every situation happens in the present moment. Your entire life unfolds in the present moment. In fact, there is nothing else. We live, most humans live, as if the next moment or the one after that were more important than this moment. But it's not. This moment is always more important than the next moment. It doesn't mean we cannot make plans. We need to make plans. But whatever plan we make, perhaps, I mean, we plan to meet here tonight. That's fine. But the, no future moment can be more important than this moment because there is only this moment. And when the future moment comes, it again is this moment. There is no future although we need it for practical purposes, but ultimately, if there were a future, somebody would have discovered it and said, oh, there it is, I found the future. And then, of course, you realize, oh no, it's the present moment. So the future is a thought in your head, and the past are thoughts in your head. And when are you thinking those thoughts? Now. So even the past cannot exist without being revived in the now. There is only now. Now, if we have a dysfunctional, bad, unpleasant relationship habitually with the present moment, and many people live like that, they, they always want to be somewhere else, this is never good enough, they're always complaining about something, if you live that way, then, of course, you are condemned to continuous suffering without even knowing it and always blaming some external factor. <laughs> That's the essence of unconscious living. So, one of the greatest or perhaps the most important spiritual practice 
is to come to a relationship with the present moment that is friendly. You might as well, because your entire life is experienced as the present moment. So no matter what form the present moment takes, even if it's challenging, you no longer resent the fact that this moment is challenging. You accept and then you see, is action possible? Do I need to take action? You look and then you take action. Or right now no action is possible, then you let go of any kind of resistance. And even if you take action, it's better to come to a place of non-resistance first, so that you are more deeply connected with life. When you are in a place of non-resistance, you connect more deeply with life, you go deeper than the ego. The ego lives through resistance of the present moment. So the entire edifice of the mind-made sense of self can be transcended if your life becomes more focused on the present moment. And you honor the present moment. That's an important thing because you encounter life in the present moment. Honoring the present moment, another word for that is gratitude. Gratitude for what is at this moment. Even if it's only, you might be sitting in a room, there's a light, you have kind of gratitude for the lights that are shining here. The flowers, which means you appreciate, you give some attention, you appreciate. Because otherwise you go through life always pursuing a mental phantom one day I'm going to be okay, I just need to get there, I just need to get to the office, I need to get there and there and there. Of course you can still make plans, you need to make plans, but you make plans in the present moment without believing that when you arrive at a certain point in the so-called future, this is going to make you happy. Nothing and nobody is going to make you happy. Yes, your life can improve, of course, the external conditions or circumstances of your life can improve, and sometimes they do. That's fine. But you're not to seeking self-fulfillment through that is the error, is the mistake. So, in other words, you need to find what is conventionally called happiness, although I don't call it happiness, because the term happiness sounds a little superficial. <laughs> Something great has just happened to me, I'm so happy. And of course the next day it disappears or it no longer makes you happy. But there's something, there's a deeper sense of joy and aliveness and a deep inner peace that is there when you live in inner alignment with the present moment and whatever form it takes. Then what happens as you practice that, this is a form of gratitude, 
In gratitude, you don't even need to say thank you. You can say thank you for this or thank you for that, or you can simply, without words, appreciate the life that's happening around you now and the life that is within you now, to feel the life that animates the body. I call it the inner body. As you sit here now, feel the life that animates the inner body. Every cell is alive. You can, you can feel that aliveness. And that takes you out of the thinking mind without losing consciousness. And here we come to the actual central point of our gathering here tonight. And that central point of extraordinary importance, it is the next step in the evolution of human consciousness. And what is that? What is this step? Human consciousness has developed the incredible ability to think over many thousands of years. You live through a mental image, and as you do, this mental image is the ego, and the ego is never satisfied for long, never satisfied for long, and feels incomplete, has problems with self-esteem and self-worth, we inhabit a conceptual reality, and we have a conceptual sense of self, and we impose a conceptual sense of self on every other human that we meet. We immediately have judgments about those humans, mental judgments, this and this and this. We immediately interpret everything according to the conditioning of the mind. How we interpret things, varies from culture to culture, but makes little difference because you would be identified with your particular mental interpretations. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening. 